Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we'll begin, 1 Corinthians 13. As I was searching for a good introduction to this sermon, um, I was reminded that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And, of course, while he had many faults of his own, he also rightly afflicted the conscience of a nation that was devoted to division and hatred to those of different colors and ethnicities. One great insight that he causes us to consider is how passivity in the civil rights era was sometimes just as bad, if not worse, than outright active hatred. So listen to this quote from his letter from the Birmingham jail. He says, I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. So notice his charge there. He is charging these ministers These others who agree with his cause in principle, at least theoretically, he's charging them with passivity when there should have been activity. Not intervening when they should, not standing up for justice when they should have. So he believed that these brothers and ministers were not ultimately fulfilling the command to positively love their neighbor as themselves. They weren't actively hating their black brothers and sisters, but they weren't actively fulfilling the command to love their neighbors as themselves. And really, this is a good reminder to us in a variety of ways where we can tend to have a shallow understanding of God's commandments to us. We can have the tendency to see God's commands to us like signs when we're in the zoo that says, do not stand on these rocks. Do not climb over this fence. And we think as long as we don't do those things, as long as we avoid doing those things, we're fulfilling all of God's commands. So like the rich young ruler, we might say, all these commands I have kept since my youth. We think as long as we avoid certain behaviors and activities, we're being good Christians. And we do this even in our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps especially in our relationships with those who are members of the same local church as we are. We'd we'd sometimes like to think that the command to us in 1 John 4, 7 is, Beloved, let us not actively hate one another. And as long as we're not actively hating other people or sowing division or being rude or unkind to others, then we are fulfilling the command. But it actually says, let us love one another. Let us actively love one another. So we often think as long as we don't actively hinder our brothers or sisters or hurt them, we're fulfilling the mission that we have to love God's people, but this is not so. In order to fulfill this command, this mission that we have stated as part of our purpose to love God's people, we have to be active and intentional. 
And so this morning, as we consider loving God's people, this, this mission that we have, I want us to, I want, I want to challenge you in your understanding, one, of what it means to be a part of a, a local church, of what it means to actually love God's people. And then I want to call you either to a recommitment to or a greater commitment to actually fulfilling this, love, this command to love God's people. We're going through our mission statement to love God's glory, to love God's people, and to love God's world. This is what we, if you're a member of the church, this is what we have committed to doing with one another. And so we want to take a close look at what it is we are committing to. And um, as we do that, I hope that you are challenged and encouraged to, to consider afresh, to consider anew what it means that you are a part of this, this membership. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13. This is the foundation of our commitment to one another. It is love. Paul says there, and he's, he's speaking in terms of these spiritual gifts that these Corinthians are expressing. He says the foundation of all these things, the, the necessary ingredient of all these things is love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider this text and others as well, we pray that you would use your word and the truths of your word to cause us to understand what it is that we are committing to do in loving your people. We pray that you would, you would work this within us. We know it's not a work merely of our own. So we pray that you would move us toward faith in you and as we do so that you would produce this love in us for one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we consider this together, have your, your Bibles open or your your Bible on your phone, ready to scroll to the next passage. We'll look a few, at a few different ones. As I mentioned last week, these are topical sermons. Typically, we walk through books of the Bible, kind of paragraph by paragraph. Uh, for these three Sundays, we're going to be considering uh, our mission statement, and these will be topical sermons, which will be looking at various passages of Scripture. So for this morning, as we consider loving God's people, I want us to consider three requirements Three things we're going to need if we're going to faithfully love God's people, if we're going to love God's people well. This is not all that we could say about loving God's people. It's a good start, though. It's a good challenge to us. Uh, First, the first requirement I want to consider is knowledge. Loving God's people requires a certain knowledge uh, about a few things. First, about uh, who we are to love, who you're called to love. And of course, first, we know the first and greatest commandment, which Jesus uh, recites from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We are to love God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We considered this last week in this mission that we have to love God's glory, right? Our hearts all to be moved with the right amount of affection for God's glory. We ought to stand in awe of who he is and our lives should flow out of that affection for him. Of course, as we talk about loving God's people, we know, well, aren't we supposed to love all people? Aren't we called to love all people as ourselves? That is uh, what Jesus says is the second command uh, in relation to the first. He's asked in Mark 12, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. He repeats back, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater, there's no other commandment greater than these. So we are to love all people, our neighbor as ourselves. Doesn't mean your, doesn't necessarily just mean your physical neighbor. It does mean that, but it means you are to love those that you come in contact with, all people. Of course, we are called to love all God's people. This would be in reference to what we call the universal church. Uh, All of God's people throughout all time and all places. We are to love all God's people. This is the command Jesus gave to his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35. I give you this command that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And what does he say? This is how people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So there is a special sense in which we are called to love in a special way other believers and um, disciples of Christ. It's not that we shouldn't love anyone else, but there's a, a familial love reserved for family members, for those in the household of faith. But what I want us to focus in mainly here today in loving God's people is not loving God's universal church, all God's people, but a particular people. This people in a particular place. Members of a particular church, of a local church. Uh, the, The actual individuals who make up this church. And our love for one another here should be more direct and more tangible. Right? It turns out, If you try to love just generally everybody, a lot of times you end up loving nobody. There's no tangible, actual love. So the way we are to aim at this in our fellowship is loving particular people in particular ways. So the local church is the context that God has given you to carry out the one another commands in Scripture. All of these one another commands that God gives, that we are to do certain things to one another. The local church is the context of that. And it becomes more clear when we actually take a look at the one another commands. So this is the second aspect of knowledge. We have to know who we're called to love in this particular purpose statement. And we need to know what it means to love. What does it mean to love? Is it just a feeling that we have towards someone? That we have nice thoughts towards the person in the row beside us? Or does it actually require some sort of activity? Well, loving others actually flows from God's love for us. Right? It is not a first movement 
Love is not a first movement from us to God or from us to, to one another. It is actually a response to God's gracious love for us. It comes from a changed heart. It comes from having been made a part of God's people. It's because we have the same faith, the same Lord, and the same baptism. So consider with me a brief survey of these one another commands. Maybe some are going through your mind. Maybe I'll fill in the blanks for some that you're you're forgetting. We are called, of course, to love one another, as we've already mentioned from John 13. Also John 15, love one another. We're called to serve one another. In Galatians 3, 14 and 15, we're called to care for one another. What about this from James 5, 16? We are called to confess our sins to one another. Ouch. (laughs) Who wants to do that? We are called to bear one another's burdens, brothers and sisters. We are called to bear with one another. We are called to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Jason read in Ephesians 4:32. Some others, we are called to encourage one another, to outdo one another in showing hospitality, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to admonish one another, to correct one another, to build one another up. Clothe yourselves, Paul says, with humility toward one another. Now think about all of these commands and notice that these don't happen if we are consumer-oriented. If we view church as a place to come and consume, these things don't happen. It doesn't happen if we're entertainment-driven. If we gather together in an assembly for worshiping God and we're merely here to be entertained or kind of filled with happiness, these things don't happen. It doesn't happen if you are merely an audience that comes together Sunday after Sunday. Or even if we just gather for worship week in and week out. Where do these things happen? They happen in a family. They happen with people you actually know and interact with. One of the things I love saying about these one another commands, especially like confessing your sins to one another or forgiving one another or bearing with one another, Those things only happen if you're close enough to one another that you actually sin against one another. I'm not telling you to go sin. But don't you sin against your family members? Who is it that you need forgiveness from except those who you are close with? It's not often those you are far distant from or just acquaintances that you need forgiveness from. It's those you you are intimately acquainted with, those that you know well, those that you know well enough to say something rude to. Or that they say something rude back to you. That requires forgiveness. It happens in a family. Perhaps we could think of all the ways that we, in our church, church members, perhaps you can think of all the ways you've been slighted. Perhaps you feel like by others in the church. Ways you think you should have been cared for but haven't been. Things you think you're in need of but nobody sought to meet those needs. And you're, you're kind of consumed with this thought of ways that you have been sinned against. So the first challenge for us in those things is to get past our own self-pity. Which is really a sort of pride at work in our hearts that we deserve better. Get past our own self-pity and move towards meeting the needs of others and being honest about what your own needs are. So this requires a thoughtfulness that doesn't 
come naturally or easily to us. It considers the thoughtfulness. When you gather for church on Sunday mornings, it considers the thoughtfulness of asking questions like, who can I love today? Who can I serve today? How can I, as you're, as you're preparing for church, how can I serve John today? How can I serve Jason or Lindsay today? How can I serve these brothers and sisters well? Or what about this? What burden is so-and-so carrying that I can help relieve, that I can carry for them? Who do I need to forgive today? And that, that can be difficult as we're preparing for worship. It, that, doesn't that, that doesn't come naturally to us, does it? It takes some forethought. It takes some, uh, it takes some thoughtfulness. And this is hard enough, but something some of you may find even more difficult. We must be willing to open up ourselves to being cared for in those ways. It requires a vulnerability that many of us aren't comfortable with. It's difficult for several reasons. It requires uh, the vulnerability, but it also requires giving up that self-pity. In other words, you need to let me love you. You need to let me carry out these one another commands to you. Let me help you carry this burden. And you might, you might inwardly be thinking, I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. Yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying, that we ought to know about one another's burdens so that we can carry them. You're not allowing me to fulfill my responsibility to love you as I'm commanded to do. So we ought to be honest about those needs that we have if we do have needs. It's one of the things we've covenanted together as as members, to be open and honest in our communication with one another. Speaking the truth in love for one another. So ask yourself a few hard questions as we consider this point. In what ways have I not been fulfilling these one another commands? In what ways have I not been fulfilling these one another commands really to love others in the church? And why haven't I been fulfilling them? What is it that's keeping me from doing, fulfilling this responsibility that I have? Time obligations that I have elsewhere? Maybe it's an understanding of how you're viewing the church. It's just a place you come each week and you just kind of get refilled for the next week. You're not viewing it as a place of service and of love. You're just viewing it as a, as a context for your own personal worship. And also, in what ways have I hindered others from fulfilling these one another commands to me? In what ways have I not allowed others to love me? And why? Is there a sense of pride? I can do it myself. I don't need anyone's help. Is there a sense of embarrassment that you need help? If we want to love God's people, it has to start with a knowledge about who we are to love and how we are to carry out, what it means to love one another. The second thing that's required to love God's people is related personal initiative. To love God's people well requires personal initiative. It's self-evident from these one another commands that we've already talked about. But I think this point deserves an explicit focus. If loving one another is fulfilled in these acts of one anothering, then it necessarily follows we must take the initiative to do them. In other words, love doesn't just happen if you just sit by idly and passively. Love is an affection which acts for another. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, 1 through 8. 
familiar passage probably to, to most of you. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Here Paul says to the Philippians, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How is the love of God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the plan of redemption? The love of God is seen in the initiative that he takes, in the first place, in planning the redemption of a people for himself and then undertaking the actions required to fulfill that plan. The Trinitarian God has initiated our salvation because of his free mercy and love to us. Because of his great love for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were worthy of his favor. But merely out, sheerly out of his grace and love for us. And now having received this love, we give it to others. We have this same mind which is ours in Christ Jesus. This same mind which takes an initiation to love others and humble ourselves for others who may not deserve it. The same mindset is ours. Humbling ourselves, giving ourselves, sacrificing ourselves in order to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, different churches aim to do this in certain ways. So there are a variety of approaches, but I think the main two are either through church-sponsored activities, church-sponsored programs, or through personal initiative. So our aim here at CCR has been to emphasize personal initiative while recognizing the benefits but also the limitations of church-sponsored programs. Uh, think about it. It's, it's a difficult balance to manage, really, but it's, it's a lot easier... Um, it's a lot easier if the elders, for you, simply organize and plan uh, a lot of programs and events and activities. Then you can, just, you can just come to those and fulfill your duties to love one another, right? Easy. You would love it, right? No, you wouldn't love it. It, it would take some sacrifice, some commitment for you to actually come to those activities and events, events. But it doesn't require any real personal initiative on your part to fulfill the command to love. Think about, uh, think of it kind of like a school. So kids, you'll recognize this, this example. Kids, for the most part, the teachers have your day planned out for you. Is that right, Susan? You're a teacher. You just show up and, and they have every, everything planned for you. You just have to follow through and do what they tell you to, which turns out is kind of difficult in itself. But you mainly just show up and do it. A lot of good things are happening there. Socialization, learning, growing as a person but it takes very little personal initiative. That would be if you wanted to learn something different outside of school, and so you undertook, 
you, you wanted to learn to play a different instrument. And so you, you undertook the practice and the understanding of the learning that it took outside of school, and you, you took the personal initiative to develop that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you could have something uh, more related to growing in and of yourself. No one's planning it for you. You're kind of mapping it out yourself, making this plan for yourself. So these are two different approaches. So we want to kind of use a balance because we're realistic. We know that with the, the demands of work and family and life, if we completely leave it up to you, things might not always go so well. We get distracted. We are passive sometimes when we should be active. And so what we've tried to do, we've tried to supplement our personal efforts with some minor programming. So in these things we do program, we want to foster the kind of one-anothering that we're commanded to do. But it requires time, effort, sacrifice. Maybe this requires a shift in your mindset about what it means to be involved in a church. Listen to this example from a book that I've recommended before, The Trellis in the Vine. The tagline is, The Ministry Mind Shift That Changes Everything. So think about this. Imagine if a reasonably, you're a church leader and a reasonably solid Christian comes to you and, and says one Sunday morning, I'd like to get more involved here and make a contribution to the church, but I just feel like there's nothing for me to do. I'm not on the inside. I don't get asked to be on committees or lead Bible studies. What can I do? So what would you immediately think or begin to say? If you're like me, you'd be trying to think of some job they could do, some area you could plug them into, some program or ministry that's already going that you could support or join. Uh, we think in terms of jobs and programs to plug people into. This is how we're used to thinking about involvement in congregational life. So jobs like usher, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. So listen to this. The implication of this way of thinking for congregation members is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, then there's really nothing for me to do in this church. I'm reduced to being a passenger. I'll just wait until I'm asked to do something. But consider, consider the alternative. Imagine you, he asks you that and you pause and reply to your friend. You see that guy sitting over there on his own? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not really sure whether he's crossed the line yet to become a Christian. How about I introduce you to him and you arrange to have breakfast with him every other week and read the Bible together? Or look at that couple over there. They are both fairly recently converted and really in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why don't you and your wife have them over, get to know them, and read and pray together once a month? And then if you still have time and want to contribute some more, start praying for the people on your street and then invite them all to a cookout at your place. That's the first step toward walking, talking with them about the gospel or inviting them along to something. And then he says this, of course there's every chance that the person will then say, but I don't know how to do those things. I'm not sure I'd know what to say or where to start. To which you reply, oh, that's okay. Let's start meeting together and I can train you how to do those things. Consider your own mindset concerning church and ministry in the church. Consider your own life in the church. Is it generally characterized by passivity toward your brothers and sisters in the church or initiative? 
and activity. As we talked about in the opening illustration, sometimes our sins are active, but sometimes they are passive. So consider, you know, the ways we might actively disobey the commands to love God's people, the ways we think if we simply avoid these things, we're good. A divisive spirit, a grumbling spirit, a complaining spirit, gossip, careless words to tear one another down. These might be active things we do to disobey this command to love God's people. But stop and think about all the ways we may be sinning against this command by things we don't do, sins of omission. What about failing to speak words of encouragement? Passing up the opportunity to speak words of encouragement to a brother or sister. Being disinterested in building relationships with other members. Neglecting to be aware of the burdens other members are facing. Being unwilling to get your hands dirty in carrying those burdens. Not considering the needs of other members. Failing to understand the importance and the role of attending, gathering together weekly to encourage one another. Refusing to correct an error or sin in someone's life. And one I think we all should feel some conviction over, prayerlessness over the church and one another. This requires initiative, brothers and sisters. Maybe, maybe in thinking of these things, you've rec- recognized some ways you've been passive when you should have been active. And so I want you to begin imagining What would it look like for me to begin fulfilling these sorts of things to my brothers and sisters? Who am I neglecting? Who am I failing to serve? But of course, all of these things aren't simply a human endeavor. They aren't just things that we work up within ourselves and now begin loving one another. right? We love because God first loved us. And so if we're going to love God's people well, it requires the Holy Spirit of God within us. This is not something you can do on your own ultimately. It's not just simply some human endeavor or human achievement. It is the work of the Spirit of God. So consider a couple of passages. Turn uh, to that passage, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And then we'll be going to Romans 5. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Some of you know it from heart, maybe. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then consider Romans 5, 3 through 8. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Notice in both of these cases, God is the source of love in us, in both our love for him and love for one another. And in both of these cases, the author tracks our love back to a certain act of God in love for us. Back to the fact that we have experienced and received His love for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Love doesn't start with us, but with the initiating love of God for us. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Do you understand what that means, brothers and sisters? You have loaded up a huge debt of guilt before God because of your sins. And you deserved to bear the punishment for those sins. But as our propitiation, God bears the wrath of God on our behalf. He takes your place, brothers and sisters. This is good news of the love of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one in that Romans passage who dies for the ungodly. You'd be seen as a great person if you died for someone who were righteous or good. Who is this who dies for the ungodly person? In and of yourself, you are ungodly. And Christ has died for you, brothers and sisters. And in this way, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. If you haven't received the love of God in Jesus Christ, if you haven't been born by the Spirit and indwelled by the Spirit, then you cannot rightly love God's people. He's the source of our love. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit produced in us. And the Spirit not only gives us fruit, He also gives us gifts. If you are indwelled by the Spirit, you have spiritual gifts. So He is the source of love in us and He's the source of the gifts we use to display our love for one another. So we read 1 Corinthians 13 and there Paul makes the point that any or all the amazing gifts of the Spirit or sacrifices that we make for one another or for others, if it doesn't spring from a heart of love, it is worthless. It's nothing. But if those actions and gifts do spring up from a heart of love, they can be of great value in building one another up and expressing our love for one another. So God commands that we love one another and then He gives us spiritual gifts as a means of expressing that love and building up the church, strengthening her, nourishing her. These gifts are given for the common good, for the purpose of building up this holy temple in the Lord. Do you remember what happened in the, in the Corinthian church though? They began seeing their own spiritual gifts as merely a means of self-fulfillment. I'm going to use my spiritual gift because I get fulfilled in using it. Or because others see how important I am because of my use of my spiritual gift. Which is completely the opposite of what Paul was reasoning. So for this reason, I think it's best when considering the spiritual gifts to have your mind focused not on yourself, but on the church. Not on your particular gifts. Not a, a journey of self-discovery. How am I gifted for the church? But a, a journey of church discovery. Need discovery. What needs are there in the church? And how can I work to meet them? How has God equipped me to, to care for those needs? To meet those needs? 
It's similar to the quote I used from the book, The Trellis and the Vine. If I think I have a certain gift and my roles in the church are limited to one or two jobs, then I might not have to, a place to serve if somebody's already fulfilling that role. If somebody already has my job. But if my roles or service are informed first by the needs of the church, then the jobs that I can fill are almost unlimited. If there are needs, perhaps God has equipped you in some way that you can meet those needs. So consider this. We'll close with this. Maybe you've identified needs in the church or in the church family, but up to this point you've only thought about them or you've only complained about them. You've been passive about those needs. Maybe you've thought someone else will take care of it. That falls under the job description of so-and-so. But I want you to leave you with this challenge. Having recognized the needs of God's people, what will it mean for you to now actively love God's people? Brothers and sisters, let us love one another.